do you see it as a profound privilege to get to lead an organization that you started? And, and then identifying what is your special contribution to that organization as a founder? Because not, not many companies get to be run by people that started them for enduring periods. And there's a real benefit in that sort of long arc of, of strategic focus um, in the, the authenticity, the, the moral authority that comes with that. Welcome to the SaaS Revolution Show, brought to you by SaaSDoc, the global conference to turn your SaaS up to 11, which returns to Dublin October 15th to the 17th. I'm your host, Alex Sumer, and on this show, I bring you insights and tactics from leading SaaS entrepreneurs and investors across the world. We just had a fantastic first stop at SaaSDoc on tour in London, and on this week's episode, I take you back to the final session of the day in which Ari Helgeson, Principal at Index Ventures, talked at length with Peter Bauer, CEO of Mimecast, about the journey from zero to IPO. Peter started Mimecast in 2003 in London as the world was still recovering from the dot-com crash and everyone was skeptical about tech. Peter, however, sensed SaaS would outlive that and become the next big thing. His bet was on a cloud-based email management system. 15 years later, Peter has had the rare chance to lead the company through all stages, including an IPO one of only four SaaS IPOs from Europe to date. From scaling and hiring to changing the center of gravity and surrounding himself with the right board members, Peter has made many mistakes along the way and has learned a great deal. He has grappled with constant spouts of imposter syndrome, but has trained himself not to listen to the doubts and instead focus on enjoying the journey. Listen on to hear how does the thinking behind the product change over time. Many people thought we were wrong along the way and said, you know, pick one of these things or, you know, pick why don't you just focus on email security or why don't you just focus on archiving? It turned out, you know, our vision was relevant together, much harder to implement. But that journey took, took some time to, to build, to build that technology. How do you know it's time to move to a new market? I remember 2007, we were about a 40-person company. You know, I said to my management team, I think we've got to launch in the US in the next 12 months. And they all thought, you, you're mad. Um, and it probably was mad. You know, again, all's well that ends well but there was nothing guaranteed about it. Which is the toughest stage on the journey and how to prepare for it? Confronting one's own uh, sense of illegitimacy to a point where you're outside of your comfort zone, not, not necessarily because you're just doing something brand new as a business, but because you're, you're starting to wonder if you're the person to run the company. It, it's really confronting that. And the way that I deal with that is the question is, well, firstly, what do you really want to do? The next stop on tour is in Paris on May the 3rd. I personally can't wait if it's going to be as awesome as the London event. Check out more on who's speaking at sas.com forward slash on tour. Now on with the show. All right. Thanks very much for joining us. I'm really excited to, uh, to be having this session with you, Peter. I think Mimecast is you know, one of these um, success stories that doesn't get uh, enough recognition in London, and maybe it has something to do with you moving to Boston a few years ago, but, uh, but uh, a lot of really exciting lessons in there for uh, the founders in the room that are kind of beginning on the scaling journey. So you founded Mimecast uh, back in 2003, um, before SaaS was really a category in its own right. So how has you know, the SaaS landscape evolved since you got started? Mm. You know, are you still getting pushback on this whole cloud thing? Uh, how was it back then and, and what have been the big kind of changes? Yeah, thanks Ari. Um, <clears throat> well, if you think back to 2003, um, how, how many uh, worked through the, uh, the dot-com boom days? So you'll probably remember after the bus, there was a great deal of, of skepticism around anything sort of internet related. So um, to, a, to a, a naive South African, that seemed like the perfect time to, to start a, a software business that was going to be uh, focused on, on, on the internet. Um, but I think, I think you know, what, what we saw at that point um, was, was quite interesting because when I started my IT career, we were moving from mainframe and mini into client-server. There was this big architectural shift going on. And the one thing I observed as a, as a kind of young 20-something-year-old 
was that there were some pretty big companies that had become small companies during that transition and some pretty small companies that had become big companies. And largely, their success had been about placing their bets on the right side of, a, of an architectural shift. And if they found themselves on the wrong side, you know, life became very difficult. And if they found themselves on the right side, doing something useful in that new paradigm and continuing on with that, uh, they had a path to success. And so our sense was in 2003 that despite all of the skepticism around, or the, the term cloud wasn't necessarily used, but around SaaS, was that this may well be that next big shift. And um, you, a lot of people might say, well, that, you know, that was a lot of foresight. Um, I, I don't think of it that way because we had two very important companies uh, evangelizing this architectural shift uh, quite visibly. Mark Benioff at Salesforce, remember the big you know, no software thing? Um, really talking and showing how you could use multi-tenancy to deliver pretty rich applications, business applications, through a browser. And then Google as well, it started to become a lot more public about their architecture and, and their methodology for building software and deploying software was very different from the traditional Microsoft client-server model. So my co-founder and I looked at this and thought, okay, ignoring what it is that we're going to do, and, and you know, we build a really cool suite that simplifies email management and deals, I could bore you for 24, the, the bar opens in an hour, so I, I shouldn't use all the time talking about what we do, but it's important stuff for companies around cybersecurity and data management, largely around you know, simplifying the email management experience at, at a corporate IT level. That's, that's a useful suite of things, but doing that on this cloud architecture and doing it in a way that could really be at the forefront of the next web of, of deploying and building technology, <clears throat> I think that was an important step. Now, naturally, when we started out, Big companies were not adopting cloud and SaaS, so by definition, and, and also our solutions were far less mature than they are today. So we had to start off eating the market from, from the bottom up. Um, and, um, and I think because of that, because we were betting on a very long, uh, sort of intuitive sense of how the market was going to move, um, we also had to make sure that we had patient capital on board. Um, because we felt very reticent to go to professional capital at that stage because, you know, on that uncertainty curve that, uh, that we saw earlier, you know, we didn't know how long that thing was going to be. You know, we, we didn't have the luxury of saying, well, it's a two-week thing or it's a six-week thing. We, we really had no idea. And we were sort of um, quite honest people, so we didn't want to make up stories. Um, we also knew that if we made up stories and took them to venture capitalists that they would probably... Uh, uh, crucify it, wouldn't you? you guys would <laughs> probably index would never crucify anybody. <laughs> no. But um, if if they didn't come true within the sort of time frames, then there'd probably be dire consequences. So, so having a, a very long or, or a runway for a gestation and incubation period was very important to us, given that long bet. But needless to say, having gone through that path, I think we all know that today, you know, cloud is mainstream. Um, Fifteen, sixteen years later. Um, we're, in a, we're in a really good place because of those architectural bits. And so one of the things that a lot of young companies struggle with as they look to scale and, and gain adoption is building trust mm. and building brand. And especially if you're selling, as in your case, security products, that becomes really important. So what were some of the early decisions that you made to kind of help build that trust and, and establish yourselves as a trusted partner to your customers? Yeah, I think that's a very good point because um, particularly in cybersecurity and, and in the work that we do, which is we're a mission-critical service. Uh, we sit in line of production email coming in and out. We also archive uh, data for, for tens of thousands of, of companies. We store a lot of information. Um, I think... Having that, it starts off with having integrity yourself and hiring people and, and the, the, the organization, having people that have integrity, that, that value trust, that understand trust, that have probably in their own personal lives made sacrifices, had all awkward conversations, done things uh, that inspire trust uh, in those around them. Um, and, and that's important because in the beginning you don't have a track record and then you earn a track record over time um, as you deliver on your promises um, and that makes it easier, and you've got referenceability, so reference customers. But to me, I think 
the time at which you, you probably earn your greatest uh, sort of kudos from a trust point of view is when something has gone wrong. Um, and how, how your customers see you deal with, with problems. So um, you know, we ha we've had, in our 15-year history, we've had two uh, incidents which I would hate to repeat. Um, in, in 2013 and in 2015. In 2013, we had a, uh, we had a major outage uh, in our UK service. In 2015, we had a major outage in our US service. Um, and you can imagine what it's like to be the CEO of a company um, that is responsible for the fact that thousands of organizations are not going to get or be able to send an email, um, how your phone rings, how your organization is under pressure, how Twitter is going crazy, how um, you can just feel the anger in the, in the air <laughs> around you um, because thousands of organizations uh, for a period of time that you don't know, again, talk about the uncertainty curve, you know there's a problem. You don't necessarily know. Is it going to be half an hour to fix it? Is it going to be three hours? Is it going to be three days? Is it, ever going to, is it ever going to come back up? Because you've got to go through a whole diagnostic process. And in, uh, in, in both cases, the problems weren't necessarily caused by our own software. They were external factors, some HP switching equipment that went haywire on the one side and then a, a malicious uh, DDoS incident uh, in, in the US. But I think that the most important thing, and what I was uh, incredibly proud of our team and our people, was the total uh, ownership that everybody took for that problem. Um, the total, uh, the teamwork that went into addressing it. Nobody was making excuses. Nobody was pointing fingers elsewhere. Everyone climbed on the phones. Everyone was handling f uh, phone calls with customers. The engineering groups, the technical operations groups, we're troubleshooting, solving problems. And you know, the, the, the weeks that followed, going to see customers, standing in the box, taking shots, listening to the stories of how this had impacted other people, and just owning it without diverting anything. Um, you know, I, it's some of the proudest times I've had of, of our people and our team, just to operate under that pressure. And those are really galvanizing times for the, for the team. And sort of looking back, you know, my observation is that you know, today's crisis is the birthplace of you know, tomorrow's legends because people talk about then and you know, what it was like and you know, the struggle and the stuff that we had to go through. And it's almost like the new people who weren't there for that crisis are kind of slightly envious. Uh, I assure you they shouldn't be. <laughs> but, um, but I think it's, it's the people and, and how we, we deal with, uh, with setbacks that builds that trust in the brand as well. And switching gears slightly to, to product, so you know, the, the way you think about product changes um, at every stage of, of a company's life. So in the early days, you're looking for product market fit. Once you've found that, you then start to kind of expand and, and make it more enterprise ready. And, and eventually, you have to kind of pivot into thinking more in terms of platform and, and kind of building, building your ecosystem. So what, what did that journey look like for you? When did you know that you had uh, product market fit and that it was time to really start stepping on the gas? Um, and where are you today in terms of that journey? Mm. So, yeah, great question. Um, I, I think one of the slightly different things with us, it, it's, not that, it's not that we didn't have to find product market fit, but we were placing a bet that a bunch of things that people already bought as on-premises, clunky on-premises solutions, uh, point solutions, that a bunch of those things integrated into a suite and delivered from the cloud would ultimately be where people would want to be. Um, and so we had a very strong conviction that unless we were completely wrong, we would probably be completely right about that because the use cases were well established. Um, the notion of, the notion of a, a, a super category, if you like, of merging things together, like uh, SAP you know, built a huge franchise by creating the ERP category, you know, just putting things together on you know, removing the need for multiple point solutions and creating a greater than the sum of the parts sort of combination. So, so we, we had real conviction and, and, and probably 
at the risk of, of hubris, of assuming, look, no, like we had religion about this and there's no one who's going to talk us out of it. We're just going to keep going. And, and thankfully, we were right. I mean, there's nothing's guaranteed in life. Um, but I, I think that um, many people thought we were wrong along the way and said, you know, pick one of these things or, you know, pick, why don't you just focus on email security or why don't you just focus on archiving? It turned out, you know, our vision was, was, uh, was, was relevant together, much harder to implement. Um, but that journey took, took some time to, to build, to build that technology. Um, and we didn't have uh, uh, many things to reference. We had to code and code and code to create a new architecture, to recreate functionality from multiple other strong incumbents. So it was you know, probably a job for insane people. Um, and l looking back, I would never necessarily, you know, all's well and ends well, but like, geez, the odds are strongly against that sort of approach to doing things. Um, but we started getting traction and you know, I, I largely had to sell using PowerPoint sort of screenshots those are my demos. Sort of, it's PowerPoint, but it's you know you click here and the next slide appears and the screen's changed. And it's doing something, while my co-founder and, and and his uh, tiny engineering team were sort of beavering away in the background. Um, but but we had good responses, and you know, I got it up to about 50 small customers, uh, and then we knew okay, people are really responding well to this general proposition. If we double down and we keep going, it'll it'll work. And, um, and now that you are kind of moving from, as we've discussed previously, kind of from scale up to, you know, a really grown up company, um, how are you thinking about growing from here? So you've taken historically a, a very conservative stance on M&A, for example. You haven't acquired a lot of companies. Looks like that's changing uh, recently. Um, what is that? What is that? Uh, thought process look like, and, and is growing via M&A becoming more important to you, and, and how are you thinking about transitioning from product to platform now? Yeah, I think so. So we, we built a, a multi-product suite from the beginning, so some might say that that's a platform. So it's a microservices architecture, multi-product, multi-tenant. So it has, it has some really good design characteristics, but that meant we had to build that organically. They weren't sort of a bunch of companies we could buy and put it together. And I think that, that that's really a feature of the cloud era. In the old days, you know, a perfectly legitimate strategy was, was just to roll up, to build your product portfolio by acquiring, you know, oh, here's a company, we buy this, we buy that, we buy that. You know, um, in, in security, Symantec built a business that way. Everything got put in a yellow box and sort of sold. But, but that... Um, that worked when you had you know, tens of thousands of IT teams all in disparate locations at different customers, and you could hand all of this over, and they would onboard, and their job was to operate these, install and operate and manage all the software. The cloud changes that completely, because the customer has no anticipation or, or desire to operate things. They just want the utility. So the onus is now on the software author and the uh, service provider to manage this. And so if one wants to scale to tens of thousands or, you know, our aspiration is hundreds of thousands of customers. We're at just under 30,000 today. Um, you've really got to think about that architecture quite differently. And, and, and f mostly it's an organic build. <clears throat> now, having said that, um, you know, we built a pluggable architecture. And so now, you know, in order to acquire certain componentry or certain skills and talent, we have looked at, at, at M&A as a, as a a vector of, of growth and, and accelerating that. Um, but I think we're very cautious. Uh, my co-founder and I both had tech companies in South Africa independently of each other before, which we sold to companies in the, uh, the dot-com orgy. Um, and that, uh, that, you know, that really, the, the companies declined terribly under new ownership, uh, especially once we left those respective organizations. So, um, you know, we understand that, that if you go from sort of scale up, sorry, start up to scale up, then, you know, at our level, we had to really get on a forced march to grow up as a business. And then many companies then start doing a lot of acquisition and they just become a roll up. And then I think, you know, at, at terminal velocity, they have to go from roll up to break up. And we've seen that with, you know, HP, Symantec, 
you know, many other companies, they just become too big and unwieldy and complex. Customer experience declines, their focus becomes different. Um, and so that's very hard to do. So I, I think we're approach M&A very, very cautiously because there's, you know, there's so much to it, culture, architecture, customer experience, um, that, that uh, one has to be good at managing. And you've always been a very international company. So you founded your first company in South Africa. You then moved to London to, to found Mimecast. Uh, and then you moved to Boston. So what was the thought process there in terms of when, was the, when did you know it was time to move and, and how were those decisions made and, and how do you manage those transition points? Um, yeah, so, so I think just driven by ambition as opposed to brilliance in, in any way. <laughs> um, it's just knowing that, okay, um, I, I think everyone who starts a, a tech company in, in Europe, doesn't matter where you are, if you're in the UK, you know, okay, we're going to need to go international. If you're in a, a smaller European country, definitely you intuitively want to figure out how to go international. Um, so for us as a UK company, um, a lot of the tech competitors were coming out of the US, so we felt, okay, we, we have to find a way to be relevant and to go and take the fight to them in the, in the US market. Um, I remember 2007, we were about a 40-person company, um, and um, I, you know, I said to my management team, I think we've got to launch in the US in the next 12 months, and they all thought, you, you're mad. Um, and it probably was mad. You know, again, all's well that ends well, but there was nothing guaranteed about it, and a lot of luck and a lot of other factors you know, helped us survive, but many companies... Um, Certainly less now, because I think they're, they're better ecosystems of advice. European funders understand what that cycle looks like better. But back then, mostly British companies would go and find their, sort of their graveyards in the U.S. Um, and not, not succeed. Um, so, so we placed some pretty big bets as a very small company to try and launch. And so beginning of uh, 2008, we did that. But I think it's, it's essential... Uh, to understand how expensive it is. And I don't just mean in terms of, you know, do you have funding or money and things like that. Um, you really have to have conviction. It's going to cost a lot in travel. One's going to have to expand the management team bench, acquire skills that one doesn't have. If one goes into the U.S. market, and, you know, I experienced this extremely, one of the most difficult parts of my role in the company was figuring out where the center of gravity is. And that sounds like, oh, well, you know, you could just say it's here or it's here. But the implications of where is your management team? Where is the core collaboration and strategy coming from? What does that mean for you know, saying goodbye to Executive A over here and, and rehiring, perhaps upskilling, and getting somebody over there? It's, it's very disruptive uh, to, your, to your rhythm. So, so international expansion, you know, generally, if, if your center of the universe is Paris or London, um, and you're going to go to smaller markets, you know, South Africa, Australia, Dubai, then that's fine. That can be your center of gravity. If you're going to go to North America, certainly in my experience, that's another order of magnitude shift because, because that cannot be a, a thing on the end of your spoke uh, out there. The center is most likely going to shift there. And, and the sooner you figure out what that is going to look like and how you're going to get there, the better. I screwed it up horribly at took me about three and a half years to figure out. Almost cost me my job, you know, as I stumbled and sort of fumbled my way through figuring out what needed to be where. So, um, and if you had to do that again, you know, how, how would you do it differently? Um, I think I would have been a lot more decisive. Um, I would have said, okay, I've got to make this change. It's going to take 12 months. I would have been very open with everybody involved and said, okay, you know, you five people, um, I need two of you in the U.S. I, I did that with my CFO. He moved over uh, just after a year after I did. Um, but the re I would have said, you know, this is who I need. The rest of you, please hang around. Here's some money to stay. But I'm going to replace you, and I want your help and support in replacing you. And I'm going to hire executives in the U.S. that do what you do, and we're going to run it from there. Um, and I'm going to I'm going to look for talent that's that's done this at, at a bigger scale. And those sound like sort of easy, straightforward conversations when you hear those words coming out. Well, <laughs> it sort of seems, <laughs> seems reasonable. <laughs> um, but I never had those conversations. Uh, 
and there was an awful lot of ambiguity and um, uh, difficult times uh, as a result. So, and one of the one of the things that a lot of companies uh, wrestle with as they begin to expand internationally is keeping a kind of cohesive, coherent culture across different offices. Do you have any particular things that you've done to kind of keep that cultural cohesion? Yeah. Um, so that's, that's so important because, you know, like obviously one offers a product to customers and, you know, we talk a lot about product market fit and, you know, that's the lifeblood of, you know, whether you have the right to exist or not. But, but on another level, you know, the right to exist is because you are providing a group of talented people with an employment experience. And that employment experience, you, you know, being as deliberate about that as possible um, is important. And I think it starts with the character of the founders and the senior team. Um, and, and there's no wrong or right. You know, we, we pride ourselves on, on a particular style that I think is true and authentic to, you know, Neil, my co-founder, and I and, and our team. Um, but then you see other companies, I don't know, Oracle, which is sort of carnivorous and ego-driven and all of that. And they're fabulously successful. I mean, make no mistake about it. So it's not my place to say, well, this is better or superior. It just, as long as it's consistent and deliberate, um, it works one way or another. Um, so um, it just, you know, what is, what is right for that, for that business? Um, so for us, from an employment point of view, the one thing that we've been very clear about is we want to provide three things. One is the place that you can do your best work at. Secondly, the place you can do the best teamwork at. Uh, and thirdly, when you look back, you will recognize, because you often don't know at the time how much you're learning. Sometimes you have to look back on it. When you look back on your time working at Mimecast, you will have done your greatest learning as well uh, as a professional and an individual. So we're very focused on that and, and on maintaining that. And part of that formula is building a culture where individuals are as vested in each other's success as they are their own. And I try and talk about that a lot, is, is we, we want you to feel like you're sitting in a place where the person next to you is, is as interested in you being successful as they are in themselves, and vice versa. And, you know, I've been asked the question when we were 50 people, well, how are we going to maintain this culture and this sort of feel about the business when we're, you know, 300 people? And then when we were 300 people, you know, asked the same question, you know, and now we're 1,200 people, people still ask me, how are we going to maintain this culture? And so that's exciting for me because, A, it means that we've probably still got it. Um, and secondly, people care about it still, which means that, you know, there's a good chance of maintaining it. Um, I, I think it's built, it's built on hiring practices fundamentally, but it, it erodes. I, I read something somewhere that, you know, culture is defined by the, you know, the worst behavior that will be tolerated by the organization. And so being intolerant or calling people out on, on inappropriate uh, behaviors uh, or things that don't fit um, and rewarding those for, for good behaviors, you know, that's, that's natural. I think, you know, one of the things that's quite close to me um, as a founder of, of a growing company and maybe something for, for, for this group to think about uh, is your employee, your early employees. You get these really sort of pre precious, valuable people that you gather around you and they're part of the early journey. And, you know, often you, you'll hear well-intentioned things in presentations about, well, you know, the people you start the journey with may not be the people that finish the journey with you, or, you know, startup people don't, aren't suitable for scale-ups and all that sort of stuff. Um, and that sort of feels a bit cold, um, although it, in many cases it's not untrue, and people are free to come and go. They can go and work at another startup if they, if they want to. But... Um, but my sense is that, that there's a real accumulated tribal knowledge and, and institutional wisdom that, that if you can harness those people and you can keep a core group of people in the organization for a long period of time, that is, that is very valuable. Um, it's also fun. It's also enjoyable. It's nice to me to work with someone that, uh, you know, that I've worked with for the last 10 years. Um, it's far better than sort of, okay, let's just keep changing the set here. Um, so, so we did something quite interesting uh, the other day. Um, uh, in fact, we copied this from uh, Tom Siebel. Siebel had this thing as they grew. They created this thing called Founders Circle, which sounded a bit uh, wanky to me. So, <laughs> um, so we, we called it the first 25. 
Um, also known as the worst 25. Um, <laughs> but the first 25 is our 25 most tenured employees. And so we did this gathering. Uh, we got the sort of uh, two and a half day thing at fancy hotel here in London, the Langham. Very nice there, by the way. Um, uh, and we did a, a, a little summit where we got them. And, th and these are people that have worked all over the world, Australia, South Africa, US, uh, and a ton uh, here in London. Um, and it was really just, um, you know, other executives in the business sort of thought of this idea as a little bit threatening. And I don't know, is this now a new decision-making or power force in the business? And I was like, no, don't worry about all of that. It's just for the fun of it. It's just for the enjoyment and just to connect these people and remind them of how important they are in our journey. And it's everyone from, you know, the guy running Australia to someone who's still working on the help desk that started there way back when. And it was such a special and valuable time. You know, and obviously a privilege to be able to do it, to be able to sort of have the resources to take 25 people, fly them around the world and behave like baboons at the Langham for, for two and a half days. But it was a really good time, um, and I think it, it brought us a lot of goodwill and awakened, uh, made these people more mindful of the special contribution that they have to, the, to, to being successful, sort of ambassadors for successful global growth at the company. Because in the absence of that, those people can also you know, become liabilities. Um, it, it, many did in our process and left the company because they sort of tapped out. Now, endurance isn't a sport that everybody's... Uh, uh, signing up for, but um, but very very constructive. So on talent, let's talk compensation. So at Index Ventures, we recently published a piece of research on uh, rewarding talent, um, where we um, did a study across geographies on kind of stock option practices and and, and rewarding employees and, and what we found was that you know in addition to culture one of the most important ways of attracting and retaining the best talent um, is to offer uh, generous options plans um, so you have some uh, contrarian ideas in some ways on on options and, and so how how have you approached that question and 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 and, and what have you found to be most effective there well, firstly, I have to congratulate Index Ventures for this is the third smartest thing I've ever seen them do. The first was <laughs> investing in Mimecast in 2009. Uh, the second was hiring Ari. And then, <laughs> and then the third was writing a piece of research uh, talking about uh, positioning themselves as being advocates for stock options being more widely distributed to European uh, management teams. I mean, that is very clever marketing because, I mean, who wouldn't want to have them as a backer given their orientation uh, to, to uh, rewarding management teams? <clears throat> so, um, so it's good. But it's important research, and it's important to have a look at it. I think my view is, you know, having lived through this journey and seen, seen mistakes that we've made but also seen how some of these incentive plans play out over time, um, you know, over a decade and a half and, and sort of surviving... Uh, prime, you know, further primary and secondary fundraising and obviously an IPO and, and sort of the, that uh, path. Um, I think one of the interesting things I found about the research um, and was that, you know, there's a difference between Europe and U.S. And, you know, the theory is, you know, the U.S. people get everything and, and the Europeans are being screwed by, you know, the, founders and, and the VCs out of stock options, other than index, certainly not by Mimecast. Um, so it, immediately my response was, well, okay, I, I think generally as a rule it is true. If you start in Silicon Valley and as you move west, generally the emphasis on stock options sort of changes from being you know, high, sort of medium and, and, and lower. That's certainly my impression. Um, and it, it's changed over time. It's become sort of more, a little bit more level. Um, but I think it is worth just appreciating that there's the different risk-reward uh, arrangements in both cases. So, you know, in the U.S., for example, you've got at-will at, uh, at employment. Literally, you know, your boss could walk over and say, hey, Ari, just uh, bye. <laughs> Pack up, clear your desk. You know, we don't feel like you working here anymore. Okay, of course, there are all sorts of, like, he could claim... 
I'm picking on him because he sort of, you know, wears Adidas sneakers and therefore <laughs> I must pay him $10 million compensation. But generally that at-will at employment is, is very different. You know, and then, you know, the rumor has it if you employ someone in Germany or France, you know, you may as well, you know, have married your sister to them because they're a, like, <laughs> they're a family member and, and there's no way of ever sort of backing out of that arrangement. So, so that's a different sort of risk-reward balance. And so um, most stock options in the U.S. Uh, that most people get from most startups and most companies never become worth anything really anyway. So, um, so it can be a little bit of an academic point, and appreciating that says, okay, well, let's, let's focus on you know, real compensation and things like that, cash. Of course, when things have been super successful, that's when everyone has a look at it. Um, so I think getting those things in balance and not just saying, well, we want to be the company that gives everyone the best of everything. Company car, company flat, massive base, huge bonus, stock options, pension, healthcare, like everything. You can't have the best of everything. You've got to pick what's important to, to your employees at that time. <clears throat> I think also, um, you know, the, 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 the debate about does everyone get, do you peanut butter the stock options across everyone versus is it more elitist? And I think our, our, when we started out, I was a kind of a communist. Everyone should get a little bit of everything. Even the receptionist should feel like an owner. Who's thought that? Um, so so we've, you know, we did that, and you end up spreading the goodness around, and you sort of hope that that increases the chances that your company might be successful. Um, it probably doesn't. Um, and so we went from that. Now, obviously, as a public company, you've got a, a very defined amount that you can use for that. So we, we focus it on the top 20%. And again, then it's important to say, okay, well, that's not just by job title. It's got to be both uh, expert as well as leadership orientated. And a leader can be you know, a leader in a field as opposed to a leader of people. So you don't want to prejudice your highly skilled precious engineers against some sort of SVP of something or other fancy who's just getting this allocation because they've got this vanity title. Um, so one has to work it out. But in our company, it's, it's largely the top 20% of people now who get, who get stock options and, and, and it sort of skews up so that you can get the very best talent at the highest level in your organization because that's what you you're competing for. And, and the better the talent at the top of the organization, the better everyone's success is. The better talent you get to hire everywhere, the greater the success, the better the experience. So, so it is worth concentrating reward in order to get that um, because not, not everything is, is equal. Um, one of the things that I put in place, and, and maybe it was a South African and British mindset and would never fly in the U.S., um, I think it's illegal in the U.S., but we, we had this thing where, where I said, if you, if you want to have stock options and you want to be a shareholder, well, then, then you need to stick around like a, like a working shareholder would in a company. So we had a clause which said, if you leave the company, you're going to lose your stock options. Um, and, and I don't know. I think I would still do that if I could do that. It's different as a public company because it's a tradable currency, so it's part of the way people think about their pay. But as a startup, you know, equity is a lot more precious than one sort of assumes it is if one rolls forward and thinks about where you're trying to get to. So, so having an arrangement which says if somebody comes along and 18 months later they didn't work out, they walk from the stock options. I don't know. People might not like that, but that, that's what we did. And I think it, it reserved, it, it, put the, it repopulated the pool and meant that people who were going to stay for the journey uh, got those benefits and we didn't have a a long tail of people waiting on the sidelines for us to do something for them. So I have one more question before we open up the floor to, uh, to Q&A. Um, so you've kind of made it, you know, public company, market leader in your segment. Um, what's next for Mimecast? I've made it. <laughs> All right, I tell you, you know, um, it's, it's an interesting observation because I would probably, you know, um, I... It, there, is, there, there is no having made it, really. Um, I, I, I think um, it was, who was it who said, um, do you struggle well? Uh, was one of the speakers this morning. Um, that, that's really it. I mean, you know, you're signing up for a struggle. A, a bigger company, uh, 
Sure, I think, I don't know, we have $140 million in the bank as a company and we have a nice market cap. All of these things are te temporary. You're just trading one form of problem and one form of struggle for another. Um, and that may sound disingenuous because you think, oh, well, I don't know, you don't, I'm worrying about, trust me, I know what it's like to have five grand in the bank and, and, and a payroll of 35. Um, so, like, it's not lost, the irony is not lost on me that I should sit here and say, <laughs> we're struggling with our 140 million and our sort of all of the stuff going for us. But, but it isn't, there is no destination. I think that's what I'm trying to say. There are only milestones. And it is important to recognize when you've hit certain milestones or passed certain milestones and to enjoy and celebrate that um, and, and to let people see that you enjoy that. And I'm not trying to take that away from, from this, but... Um, but it isn't, uh, it, there, there, there's very little time for victory laps because there is always someone bigger. It's a competitive marketplace. Um, it, it, it doesn't get, the old things get easier, but the new things get, get harder. And so the kind of challenges that we have to think about now are, are just at a bigger scale. You know, how do we do things that will really move the needle? So we can launch a new product and it could, it could in th two years get to 10 million ARR and nobody cares. Whereas, I don't know, go back a while, you know, I, I'm sure 20% of the people in the room would be thrilled to have a business that in two years got to 10 million ARR. I know we would have when we, when we started out. It took us a lot longer. But um, it's really just, you know, turning up every day. Uh, somebody earlier said, you know, just can you pick up the shovel, you know? It's just facing the shovel of the day. Um, and, uh, uh, and loving the game. And, uh, and just continuing to grow uh, and taking the company forward. Great. All right, we're going to open up to questions. Let's see, what do we have here? So, which leg of the journey from starting out all the way through to IPO was the hardest? I think confronting, um, confronting one's own uh, sense of illegitimacy. Um, and I, the founders in the room who've sort of gotten the companies to a point where you're outside of your comfort zone, not, not necessarily because you're just doing something brand new as a business, but because you're, you're starting to wonder if you're the person to run the company. So... Confronting that sense, uh, there's some good writings on it. Imposter syndrome is what it's sometimes called. Um, and, and Mark uh, Littlewood's uh, smiling because he, <laughs> he heard me talk about this at Business of Software in 2012. Um, it's, it, it's really confronting that. And, and there's so much noise in the system about, whoa, this founder, is he, can he scale? Can she scale? Like, is she the one to run a big company? Or don't we need someone more experienced and all of this sort of stuff? And, um, and, and that, that is tough. That's psychologically tough. And that never goes away. You know, it, it endures. And, and the way that I deal with that is the question is, well, firstly, what do you really want to do? And do you see it as a profound privilege to get to lead an organization that you started? And, and then identifying what is your special contribution to that organization as a founder. Because not, not many companies get to be run by people that started them for enduring periods. And there's a real benefit in that sort of long arc of, of strategic focus um, in the, the authenticity, the, the moral authority that comes with that. Um, and it's a precious thing. It's not something, it's something you can easily screw up. But, but understanding the legitimacy of that and realizing that uh, actually there probably isn't somebody better. There probably are a bunch of people that are better at things that if you are lucky enough to hire them and have them on your bench, you can extend that sort of magical scene of a founder-led organization. But it's, it's overcoming that self-doubt, uh, and that, 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 I found, um, that I found the hardest thing at times, and, and especially when, when other stakeholders might might question you quite hard on that point as well. Um, just really knowing what you want to do uh, deep down. So the next question is, um, you know, at your scale, managing 1,200 people, 
Uh, how many direct reports do you have? How do you manage that? And, and, and what are the roles? Mm. Yeah, great question. Um, so that team design, that's... Um, so one, one of the things that, that we had, you know, as we went from sort of startup to scale up to what I'd call grow up, which is, you know, what you kind of need to do to be a, uh, a, a public company. And when I say grow up, I don't necessarily mean in the, like, hey, Ari, grow up, man. Uh, <laughs> I, I really focus on the grow up because you have to be growing. It's not just about being mature and steady state. A public company is expected to grow, whether it's revenues or earnings or market share. Uh, there's a growth dynamic to it that's very important. Um, um, I, I, I really had to, I suppose, upgrade my management team and put a lot more responsibility on them. So as a public company, you spend a lot more time with your CFO. You spend a lot more time out there with, uh, on the, talking to the street. I brought in a COO. Um, and again, if you which I did at the time, sort of Wikipedia COO or Google COO. It's like it's everything and anything. And what it comes down to is what, is the, what are the capabilities that, that would complement the, the CEO best if handled by somebody? So, so for me, Ed uh, Jennings handles sales, marketing, and, and uh, services, customer success, if you like. And that's a very big part of the organization. So I've got, I've got a CFO. I've got... Uh, uh, COO, handling sales, marketing, and, and customer success. I've got um, uh, my, my co-founder, who's our CTO, who's a sort of architect and, and advisor now. Um, I've got uh, head of engineering. I've just hired a chief strategy officer. Uh, she joins us uh, next month. I've got a, um, a head of, of systems, security, uh, and risk. I've got a GC, and I've got a head of HR. So that's eight. Um, and that's expanded to eight sort of fairly recently. I'd kept it at about six or so for, for a while. Um, but those people and having the best people that you can source and really building that as a cohesive team uh, is a huge part of, of, of my job. Um, um, so I rest on that team a lot. Here's a good question. So we already touched on the mistakes around, um, you know, involved in, in not being deliberate enough about geographic expansion. Um, apart from that, what would you say was your top avoidable mistake and, and how could you have avoided it? I, I think... Um, I, I think the, the, the shift of gravity to the US. Look, ha hanging on to people that are either in the wrong place, like physically, or in the wrong place from a skill set point of view, I think that's a mistake that everyone makes, and, I, and I'll probably sort of make it till the day I die. It's just how quickly can you act on that? You know, Do you leave the wrong person in the wrong place for three months or three years? Because the difference can be profound. So I don't know, try, try get it addressed. Um, and, and it's very difficult. Like I, now, obviously, we have a recruitment team. We have a budget. We can get retained recruiters to work for us. We have a brand. We have, um, but in the beginning, you have, we had no brand. We, had, we didn't even have index as investors to go, look, index invested in us. We must be cool. Um, so, you know, it was just, it was really hard to attract uh, talent. And we really had to trade on our networks, on force of personality. On, um, so... So having access to a talent pipeline so that you can feel freer to make those sort of drafting and team selection decisions is, is, is very important. So resourcing that and getting a strong sort of HR partner to work on that is important. Um, I think the other thing for me was underestimating uh, the importance of board composition. Um, so I had the sort of naive approach of, hey, find some sort of experienced gray helmet who's done corporate life, who'd be a sort of non-exec and... Let's, let's give this guy something. And, and then, you know, they ask for 5% or 10% of the company to do it. And, you know, it all sounds very sensible. And, you, and again, it's part of this calculus in your head of, oh, well, maybe that'll just sort of increase our chances of success by a little bit. Um, you know, and then you, you know, I did that a couple of times. <clears throat> and, I mean, they're helpful. They're nice people. But you realize that you outgrow them pretty quickly. And actually, they don't really have a great deal to offer. And 
And then you end up sort of living with, with certain of those people. And, and it's not always bad. I mean, I've got a fabulous uh, non-exec independent director who's a, you know, a co good corporate UK guy um, who, who's helped us tremendously over time. But <clears throat> I've also been through cycles where you really put too much capital in what this sort of non-exec will do. Um, and then I've made mistakes like delegating my relationships with my investors to these people. Um, and having them manage the relationship with, with VCs and other board members, sort of, well, let me handle the board relations and I, I'll focus on the, the, the running the company. Bad idea. Um, as a founder CEO, you want to be really close to your, your venture, your venture investors in particular. Um, so you know, if I had to do that again, I would, I would much more carefully select my, my non-executive contributors you want to have non-executive contributors as a good counterbalance to venture directors. Because venture, venture, look, I mean, venture firms are, are great. It's a very important part of funding. Um, success costs money, um, and, and being successful, once you are successful, you need more money than you, than you needed before you were successful, you know, in terms of success being defined as sort of getting customers and growing and expanding and things like that. But understand when you bring a venture firm on, in the beginning, it's all alignment. You know, we're all aligned. We all want the same thing. The difference may be that they have a biological clock that's ticking. And, uh, <laughs> and you may not. And you may think, well, and we'll deal with that in the future. And, and you will deal with that in the future. Make no mistake. So, so at a certain point, their biological clock will inform their thinking, their decision-making, and there are no guarantees that it is not profoundly wrong-headed um, because it's designed to achieve the outcome that they promised their limited partners. Uh, and now, as a limited partner in certain VC funds, you know, I know, I read the paperwork, oh, okay, I'm going to get my money out in X year's time, and it's going to be worth a lot. Um, so I hope they do that. <clears throat> you know, pity the portfolio companies and the CEOs, they trample on to achieve those outcomes. Well, I hope not. But the good ones won't do that. But, but there is. That's the reality. Is there, there's a contract. There's a deal that comes with taking professional money. And so you want to have strong independence that can counterbalance that, that can that have the experience, that can tell you what's really going on, that can keep things uh, right-headed because um, otherwise things can get squirrely. And the destiny of an organization is a fragile thing. Um, great companies don't become great companies by accident. It's a hard-fought battle um, to retain that, that strategic path over a long period of time. And it is profoundly about the people uh, that, are, that are involved. So, so building a good board is, is important. And choosing investors carefully um, is important. Go index. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> On that note, uh, please join me in, in thanking Peter for joining us. That was, uh, that was phenomenal. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the SaaS Revolution Show and have picked up some valuable lessons from Peter Bauer and Ari Helgerson. If you want to hear such great conversations in person and discuss the lessons with attendees on the same journey as yourself, join us at our next SaaS Stock on Tour stop in Paris on May the 3rd. Find out more at sasdoc.com forward slash on tour. Thanks for listening and see you next time.